Welcome to the Stream Roots podcast on deconstructing of faith and how to help people reconstruct their faith. Uh, this is part two of this really, really important episode here with Abdu Murray. Thanks for joining us and being back again, Abdu. Great to be here. Thanks for having me again. How was your drive today? Was it good? Oh, uh, it was uh, traffic free. <laughs> okay. Oh, it good. was traffic free. It was almost like you uh, you were already here. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I felt like I've never left. It's, yeah. uh, you guys stuck with me the whole time. We love yeah. it. <laughs> Well, we're such great company. It feels yes. that way, doesn't yes, it? Indeed. Oh, man. Yes, indeed. Absolutely. <laughs> Sorry, I wore the same outfit. Uh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> it's funny you should mention that. I am too, Mark. <laughs> That's how it goes. <laughs> but anyhow, we, we're here for our second episode, which I, I'm really pumped about. The idea of not only assessing the issue, which I thought you did a really great job of, of what is deconstructing. Deconstruction. Why do people deconstruct? There's sometimes there's a good thing to do here uh, as Christians. It's a, it's, a, it's a necessary thing, and sometimes it can actually be a, a, a bad thing, though. It could shipwreck your faith. It could uh, cause you to leave Christ behind. Mm. So we want to really just focus today on the issue of reconstruction. How do we help? people reconstruct their faith or maybe there's a pastor right now or a ministry worker or somebody listening who's thinking and literally is going through this process of deconstruction how could we speak to them how could we equip people to help people to reconstruct their uh their their hope in jesus and so uh abdu uh we're so glad to have you again and john's with us here and um go ahead john i'm here I'm happy to be here. No, it's great. Uh, John's wearing a winter hat in my office, and it's like 80 degrees in here. But I'm way. also wearing a uh, a Moreno wool shirt that actually keeps me both hot and cold, depending on my internal temperature. So. Wow. <laughs> That's Techno- fancy. Yeah, technology. Pretty crazy stuff over there. <laughs> All right. Anyways. Yes, yes. So, Abdu, let's just look at this idea. How can we help people reconstruct their faith and and really grasp Christ and the gospel. Mm. Well, a uh, a primary way, I, I would say the primary way, is to f- create that re- sort of relationship with someone mm. where they can actually trust you with their deconstruction. Because I, I want you to r- realize something too. Most of the deconstruction uh, stories you hear, whether it's in written form or you see it in an interview or you hear, watch the YouTube video, or you know, if you just talk to someone and you hear them saying it over dinner. Um, it almost always comes with a tremendous amount of pain um, uh, because leaving one's worldview and and started challenging and upending their life. Some people have a healthy Christian um, or a, a healthy church life um, and they deconstruct for whatever reasons they deconstruct for and they realize I'm going to lose all this. What is Sunday going to be like when I don't go to church with my wife? What is um, Sunday going to be like when um, I don't go to the the Bible study that I usually meet the guys for ahead of time, or um, I have a ladies' Bible study I've been going to, and now I just don't do it anymore. Am I going to lose those friends? There's tons of pain involved in that. It's not just simply, I change my beliefs and I walk away and all that. And, and some of the bravado that comes from some of these videos or some of these stories, I don't think actually is um, the full story. A lot of times I find that that is actually a mask for the pain that's there. Sometimes it's really there. Other times it's a mask for the pain that's really there. Um, so I think the first thing to really fundamentally try to accomplish is to create a relationship and establish a form of trust, which of course you should do before you, they even start on the deconstruction path because, uh, and we're talking about camp, uh, to, to, uh, sorry, pastors here or ministry leaders of some kind, um, I know it's difficult. If your church is a big church and there's a lot of people involved, um, 
you know what a struggle it can be to be involved in people's lives and not have it consume your entire life. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, we need to be involved in folks' lives. And if your staff is big enough to where they can actually engage in people's lives and they can become trusted people with whom they can uh, share a journey and, and to whom any question can be asked, any question, even if your answer is, I don't know, Mm. Um, because you don't, because one of the, one of the chief reasons why I've seen people not want to ask people in church their toughest questions is because they feel like the, the pastor won't have an answer. Not because the pastor is stubborn or doctrinaire or whatever it is, because they actually have a legitimate belief, or I'd say legitimate in terms of the the authenticity of their belief, whether the pastors like this or not is another issue, but they have a belief that if I ask them this hard question, this pastor is going to be so embarrassed that they don't know the answer that I don't want to have that awkward conversation, or they're going to be so embarrassed that they're going to give me a half-baked answer, Mm. and it's going to be worse than no answer at all. And so what I would say is create the kind of relationship where someone can ask you any question they want to ask you, and they won't be judged for being a doubter. We're judged for having disbelief. Cultivate, I think we can cultivate an attitude within ourselves of doubt the way Jesus actually addressed those who doubted. I mean, I want you to think about John the Baptist. So John the Baptist is the progenitor of Jesus, right? He comes and he is the way maker. He's the, he's the path clearer. He's the one who's crying in the wilderness, make straight the paths of the Lord. And he is so chosen by God to be this person that his birth is given by a sign. Um, It is foretold. His dad, even though doesn't quite believe it, is suddenly struck dumb, so he can't even speak. Um, And then he names him John uh, in align with obedience to what he now knows. He leaps in the womb. John the Baptist leaps in the womb when he's near his cousin's mother, the Savior's mother, while Jesus is gestational in his mother as well. That's how called John the Baptist was. He wasn't even cerebrally formed yet, and yet his spirit knows he's near the Messiah, and so he leaps in his mother's womb, as it were. And yet fast forward to the time when Jesus is baptized by John, and then fast forward even further to the time when John is feeling at his lowest point. He speaks up for the truth. He tells the king, he tells Herod, what you've done is wrong, and he's put in prison for it, and he knows he's going to be beheaded. And he's waiting for the Messiah to overthrow the Romans and overthrow the corrupt um, religious leaders, and it doesn't happen. And what does he do? He sends his disciples to Jesus so they can ask, are you really the one who's to come, or should we look for another? In other Mm -hmm. words, despite everything I've gone through in my life and how 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 devoted I've been to you, my circumstances have created in me at least a modicum of doubt. Mm. Now, what does Jesus do? Does he sit there and say, you go back and you tell that lousy (laughs) soul. He doesn't do that. He says, go and tell John what you see and hear, that the blind see, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. In other words, go share with John the evidence of what you've seen. Mm. You've seen the evidence. John's hope is well-placed. And it even talks about John later on. And he says, what did you expect to see? And all these things. He he extols John's virtues because he doesn't cast away the doubter. Even someone who is so committed. Jesus could have been heartbroken by this. But he says, no, go strengthen John's faith. Go strengthen his faith. Um, uh, Thomas. Thomas is a doubter. 
You called him Doubting Thomas. Thomas is more of a questioner than a doubter. But Uh, Real quick, I feel bad for Thomas because all the disciples doubted, right? They all were there. He was the one who was like, I need to see the evidence. But he was the thought. He was like, hey, you know what, guys? We're saying this stuff. But... um, and it's funny because, you know, uh, Thomas is saying, he's hearing the evidence. He's hearing, look, I'm a lawyer. I'm a trial lawyer. I know exactly what evidence is like. And most evidence in trials comes through eyewitness testimony. It doesn't come through the DNA or through the whatever. It usually comes through eyewitness testimony. So it's a very valid form of evidence. And so Thomas is hearing it. He's hearing his brothers and sisters, um, who he's ministered with for three years, say, I saw him risen. And he's saying, I won't believe it until I see him with my own eyes and I can feel the scars. And Jesus walks through the <laughs> locked door. This is the best part. Can, can, can I take a, sl- a slight excursus <laughs> yeah, for a moment please here? Do it. Sure. Sometimes <laughs> the scripture is just so beautiful, I can't even help myself. Uh, yes. um, so C.S. Lewis has this wonderful uh, essay called the, Weight of, the book called The Weight of Glory. And he points out that the word glory in Hebrew, it means heaviness. It means substance and weightiness and thickness. And so he points out that Jesus, in his glorified state now, his body has now been glorified, having been risen from the dead. He is the most glorified thing on earth. In fact, which means he is the heaviest thing on earth. Mm. He is the most real thing on earth. And so when he walks up to a locked wooden door, it's nothing compared to him. It's less real than he is, which is why he can walk right through it. Mm. That's wow. amazing. So that's just a side thing. Yeah, I never heard uh, that before. Yeah, yeah. He's, he, he, the, the, the door is like smoke. Yeah. And, we're, and here's the cool thing. We're going to have those kind of bodies as he was raised imperishable and glorified, so we also shall be raised as well. Our bodies will be like that, so I can't wait. Um, That's going to be pretty cool. It will be pretty cool. I'll have yep. more hair. It's been great. <laughs> um, well, you won't but, have much privacy, but yeah, no, right. no privacy, <laughs> but lots of hair. Yeah, lots, be great. Lots, yeah, lots of doors being walked through. Um, but um, so Thomas is saying, I won't, I won't, I won't believe it until, and he has all this other evidence. And so when Jesus actually says, you believe now because you see, but blessed are those who believe and who have not seen. He's mm. not commending blind faith. He's mm. not commending that. What he's saying is you had enough evidence. John Lennox points this out. Seeing is one form of evidence, but hearing eyewitness testimony is another form. And you had that, Thomas, but I'm going to give you what you asked for. You wanted evidence, and he knew Thomas's heart. He knew if Thomas has this evidence, he will believe. And he gave it to him. So the question then has to be, for the skeptic, for the doubter, for the questioner, when we find a relationship with them, we ask the question, what would it take to actually get you off of center or off of doubt and more towards belief? What kind of evidence would it take? And if I answered that, and, and here are their questions, and if I answered that question, would it lead to it? Would, would, it, would it change your opinion? Would it, would, it, would it actually matter to you? Mm. And here's why I ask that question, because oftentimes um, when you create that relationship of trust, people will be honest with you and they'll actually say, here's why I'm struggling. And maybe the reason is the question behind the question is really a matter of a moral issue or it's more yeah, a matter yeah, of a situational yeah. issue. Um, uh, but other times the question is one of the important things. And so creating that relationship of trust is based on listening and asking good questions. Asking questions is probably the most important practical thing you can do to help someone reconstruct their faith because it tells them, I care about listening to you, not about responding to you. I care about listening. So we ask to get information and to understand a person. We don't ask to respond. 
because we, we have what, what's called yeah, but syndrome. I call it yeah, but syndrome. It's people who say, whenever you talk, they say, yeah, but yeah, but yeah, but they, they can't wait for you to stop talking so they right. can start. Um, we have to be, not be those people. We have to listen to understand and then respond with understanding. Uh, but asking questions is the most practical thing you can do, I think, in helping someone to reconstruct their faith because it shows them that you're taking them seriously as well. Um, and you might find it's a personal reason and it's nothing to do with the intellectual issues. Uh-huh. Um, other times it's both. Usually it's both. Okay. Um, so I think that that's an important facet of, of, of the conversation. Well, so even, we listen. Even going back to the first episode, mm-hmm. you said the idea of there's no nuance anymore. Yeah. It doesn't have to be one thing. Mm-hmm. It could be multiple things. And it could be a moral issue that was stacked onto an intellectual issue mm-hmm. or vice versa or many different things. You know, it could yeah. be a, a mo- you know, a pain from the past. So I, I really like that. And asking questions helps see what's really going on here. You know, it's funny. F.W. Borum, um, this, uh, well, this, 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 you should read, everyone should read his essays. F.W. Borum has, a, has, a, has an essay where he talks about basically labels we give people. And Borum says, um, we find that, I'm going to summarize him, I'm going to paraphrase him, I don't have the quote memorized, uh, but this is pretty close. He says that um, uh, we go about labeling someone and think that our task is so easy and easily finished, he says, but there's far more work than that. We see a man and we hang around his neck an imaginary sign that says believer or one that says skeptic. Is, but we don't really, really realize that oftentimes the believer and the skeptic can lodge in the self-same heart. And he points out, he says, Lord, I believe, there you have the believer. Help thou mine unbelief, there you have the skeptic. We often talk, he says, of the lion and the lamb or the wolf and the lamb laying down together, but we don't really realize that the skeptic and the believer often lie down in the self-same heart. Hmm. And sometimes we, we want to label someone a skeptic because they have a doubt. Or label someone a believer because they seem so strong in their faith, when in reality, they're both in the same person. And if we recognize that through questions and relationship, that is really, really, that's, that's pastoral. That's not just apologetics. That's pastoral. Right. Well, that's yeah. the father of Jesus, right? That's the heart of Jesus. Indeed. You see Jesus always asking questions. Indeed. Uh, the mm. master question, asking questions. I mm-hmm. love it. And... Uh, all those are really great things, and and so you, even this idea—if I can piggyback off some of what you said—you mm-hmm. um, know, there's just how do you help people reconstruct? Well, engage with them, talk mm-hmm. to them, yeah. And 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 I can tell you story after story of people in my life that I got to engage with and talk to. And I remember one time uh, a man I was talking uh, knew the couple really well, and the wife called me up and said, "My husband told me he never loved me." in the first place. And Mm. they've been married for like 20 years, three kids. And so Mm. sat down and talked to him. We had a relationship, did ministry together. And, and after a while, you know, he just was kept going on, but we, we had a good relationship. And so I finally got to the truth and asked him what's really going on. And he had another lover. Mm -hmm. Something took a place of his heart where his view of his wife, maybe there was things that happened with issues that over time that splintered in, but eventually this other lover, this uh, replaced that. And yeah. so now he viewed everything in the past through that lens. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, that, that, that does a, there's actually a common thing uh, about when, when betrayal happens or when trauma happens is that you tend to remember things in the past through a lens that actually isn't accurate, um, where you can might be factually accurate, but your interpretation of what that actually meant is often skewed now by what you just went through. Um, and maybe it's even the betrayal of yourself. Like, I've become this person. I've become this person that cheats on his wife, or I become, you know, and you, you can't believe it. So you justify it. 
And then everything else starts to cascade and fall from there um, as but one example. You know, I get calls um, once in a while, I, actually more than once in a while, where someone calls me and they're a Christian and they're starting to doubt their faith or they're, they, they think they're still a strong Christian, but <clears throat> oftentimes the doubt creeps in because of someone they met. And I don't mean someone who's influenced them and challenged their faith. I mean it's somebody that they're actually in love with now. Okay. So objections that they once heard that they didn't give any real credence to because they were answerable suddenly have a lot more credibility because the person saying them is, um, you know, they're enamored with that person. Mm. Um, and that's, that's a real phenomenon. That happens all the time. Uh, and so I get this phone call, whether it's uh, someone who says, oh, I'm dating a Muslim, and they are starting to say that, you know, really there's no real differences between Christianity and Islam. Uh, it's all one God anyway, and you know maybe Jesus was just a good prophet, not actually the Son of God. And they start saying, you know what? Maybe maybe they're right about that. Do I really have to believe these things after all? Maybe I can be a quote unquote Christian without having to believe that He died and rose from the dead. I'm like, well, the Christless cross um, and a crossless Christ are basically no Christ at all. Right. Um, <clears throat> uh, but there's always a first question I ask in this: um, is who is your first love? And do you find yourself betraying or ignoring or otherwise sidelining that first love? So you say you're a believer. What does it mean to be a Christian? And to be a Christian means that Christ is your first love above all others. And so if you're willing to go down a path where you're willing to share your life and as, as, as two become one flesh with someone for whom Christ is not their first love, how is that possibly going to be a real unity if someone does not love and maybe even disdains your first love? How is that possible? And so you have to ask yourself the question, why are you, when did these doubts creep in? What are these things that are happening? Now, you don't want to commit the genetic fallacy. Like I said in the last episode is we don't want to commit the genetic fallacy and say your doubts are born only of your emotional attachments and therefore your doubts aren't real. That's not true. That's, that's just logically not true. But Recognizing the motivations helps us to understand why we're coming to the beliefs we are and maybe why we're dismissing otherwise good arguments for the Christian faith because they happen to go against our desire against the Christian faith. And that's a suppression of the truth, uh, as, the, as the Bible often speaks of. Mm. So I think asking questions, creating relationship, I mean, what kind of relationship must you have had with the person who can actually tell you at some point, I'm going to confess that I'm actually cheating or I'm actually giving my heart away to somebody else and that justifies why I say I've never loved my wife in the first place. In order for someone to come to that position, they really have to trust you and know you and care and or know that you care because that's ammunition. Yeah, and, and they're being and vulnerable at that moment. Being vulnerable and really people aren't vulnerable. Sometimes you had to press on it. So I was like, okay, what's really going on here? Yeah. And he said, yeah, I don't, I'm not sure I'm a Christian anymore either. And I was mm-hmm. like, well, what, what, you know, and so you have all the excuses and all the things happening, but like, hey, what's really going on? And it took yeah. a long, long time. Yeah. And, but it did come out. Well, and, these, uh, these conversations on podcasts yeah. are always five minutes long. You know, we, yeah, yeah. I, I said this and then he said this and then it said this and it happened. So the, the story I gave about the young man after the church service, uh, the chapel service, that took forever. Right. It didn't take the three minutes I took to describe it. Um, it's hard work. Yeah. Oh, and that's the other part of helping someone reconstruct their faith. Be committed to the process of reconstruction because it's not a conversation. It's multiple. Right. I To piggyback off of what you just said there, and that has to be two ways. Mm. Not only are you committed to helping this person, but that person has to be committed to the reconstruction process. Absolutely. 
you have to ask them to even want to be reconstructed. Absolutely. Because yes. a lot of them don't want to. And, and, and that's, oh gosh, that breaks my heart so much yeah. just to leave them in that, for lack of a better term, just, just the brokenness mm-hmm. of everything that they've, you know, for, for however, however long they've believed this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting you say that uh, as well, John, because I think what's important is uh, we often think of you have, again, this, that, the death of nuance, the death of subtlety, is we think that in order to actually reach them, we have to be committed to the deconstruct, the reconstruction process or else don't help them at all. What if we actually deal with them in their messiness of their lives and they never become a Christian again or they have no intention of becoming a Christian again? They don't even care about spiritual things anymore. Do you suddenly not help them anymore? Of course, you, 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 you continue to help them. And then maybe along the way, they begin to ha- start caring about those things which are um, spiritual once again. So we don't abandon them because they're no longer an evangelistic project. Mm. We, they're people for whom Christ died. Whether they come to believe that oh or not gosh, is not up so to us. Good. So I think that's a really important factor here is that we don't make them our project. We we make them our friend. We make them our cousin, our sister, our husband, or our wife, whoever it might might be, and to say, how can I help you in some other way? You know, there's a great story. Um, uh, there's a book by uh, Marie Chapion called Of Whom the World Was Not Worthy, and it chronicles the true stories of various missionaries in various places. And one of the most impactful ones I've ever read is the story of uh, a missionary named Yaakov, which is the sort of Eastern European way to say um, Jacob, and he comes across a man named Simmerman. This is in the former Yugoslavia. Now, in Yugoslavia, the former Yugoslavia, it was war-torn. There was various factions murdering and killing and raping and pillaging each other constantly. And the church happened to be complicit in some of mm. the awful. So Yaakov is this Christian missionary, and he meets this man named Simmerman. And Simmerman wants nothing to do with Christian faith whatsoever. He's abandoned it completely. And what he says to Yaakov is essentially, is like, you know, these men helped murder my own nephew. I see them walking around in their priestly vestments and their fine, beautiful, clean, white robes, but inside they're dark and they're bloodstained. I want nothing to do with these people. So Yaakov asks him a question. He says, um, so let me ask you a question, Simmerman. If someone broke into your house and stole your coat and your hat and went to a bank and robbed that bank, and he's similarly built to you. He looks like you. He, he wears your coat and your hat. And eyewitnesses say, I saw Simmerman running out of the bank. It was his hat and his coat, and the guy looked just like him. It's got to be Simmerman. And the, and the authorities knock on your door to arrest you. What are you going to say? You're going to say it wasn't me, but it looked like me. You know, the point is, is that Simmerman, uh, Yaakov is trying to point out to Simmerman, is he's trying to say, just because these people wear Christian clothes, or wear these things doesn't mean they have Christ in them. Um, <clears throat> but don't reject Christ uh, because of those who abuse his name. Um, and, but Yaakov knew where it was going. He says, I don't want anything to do with this. But Simmerman didn't, Yaakov didn't abandon Simmerman's life. He stayed in his life. And after a lengthy period of serving Simmerman's family, despite Simmerman's skepticism and his staunch apathy, not even apathy, antipathy toward the gospel, eventually Simmerman bends his knee bows his head and gives his life to Christ. And when he tells Yaakov why, he looks at Yaakov and says, because you wore his coat well. Oh, praise God. And that is, we need to do that. That's oh, amazing. Yeah. And we, we, we've, we've done a good job as a church of doing that. And we've done a terrible job of the church of doing that. Um, we just need to be more consistent. We can do it and it can happen, even with the, the, the staunchest of hearts that deconstructs because of abuse or because of even murder. 
in some ways too. We can have that rebuilt. So we should have hope. Yeah, I love that. And and uh, you think about like the prodigal, mm-hmm. the father's heart waiting. So it, his son had to come to the end of himself, right? Mm-hmm. He, he, you want the inheritance, you're going to go away. You know, they're there, but and and he had to come to the end of himself at times. Indeed. And then the rich young ruler, another guy, came up to Jesus, and mm-hmm. uh, Jesus got to his heart issue of his idolatry, love for money. Yeah. And and he wasn't willing. He walked away, and Jesus didn't run after him. Mm-hmm. He had to come to an end of himself. And so there's there's everything's case by case. Sometimes we pursue, sometimes we go and we we work. And we and do you want to reconstruct, or mm-hmm. do you have to come to the end of yourself to actually reconstruct? Yeah. So those are those are great. And uh, one other thing, I love that story. What was that book from? It's called Of Whom the World Was Not Worthy. Yaakov and Zimmerman. Yaakov and Zimmerman by Marie Chapian. You might find that in my next sermon. <laughs> okay, there you go. There you go. There you go. Yep. But, uh, yeah. um, I heard it said before that there's uh, two reasons why people don't know Jesus. Mm-hmm. They don't have friends who are Christians, or they do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Man. Yeah. yeah. That's an indictment. Sure but is. But it's an important one for us to take in. Right off, right off what you said, right? You yeah. know what I mean? Like there's things that the church does so good. Mm-hmm. And and we have all these warts and failures and things. Right? But there is really good things. But there's also things the church has done so bad. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we got to remember that. And that's part yeah. of it. It's part of yeah. this journey we're all on where as fallen people and God's working these things and the Holy Spirit's moving in hearts. And he's He's doing things through the good and the bad and our failures. You know, God's being glorified through these things. And so, but we want to see people really walk with Jesus and persevere and know Christ to the Mm -hmm. end, you know? Mm -hmm. So great, great insight there. And I love that story. Mm. So, uh, Abdu is continuing this idea of helping people reconstruct. This Mm -hmm. is just really helpful and uh, just a really great conversation. What are effective ways to address doubts and questions that people have towards Christianity? Well, in addition to the, the very fact that don't treat doubt as a dirty word, but treat doubt as a mechanism, if it's true doubt, that leads to drive someone to want to know the truth, understand that, assess that, and then act on that. If it's just doubt because they just don't want it to be true, you're going to have a tougher road to hoe on that one. Um, Mm. But um, I think the way to address doubts is first listen to what actual doubt is and what's generating it. So I'll give you an example. Um, uh, I was with a colleague... Um, and we were um, address. Uh, we were doing an open forum, and someone asked a question about the veracity of the Bible, and um, why should I trust it? Um, but the question actually was worded in a specific way. The question essentially was, "How did we get the books of the Bible? Why should I trust that process?" Mm. And so um, we started off answering the question. Um, well, you know, the Bible has all this wonderful archaeological evidence in its favor and, you know, things that Bible scholars once thought were false about the Bible, we actually have uncovered. We turn a spade over in uh, the middle of the Middle East and up pops a coin that says, yes, and this, in fact, this happened in this way in this time. And it you know, verifies the Bible over and over and over again. Or we have so many manuscripts of the New Testament, 5,000 something plus manuscripts of the New Testament in various languages, including old ones that are really dating back early and you have all this wonderful history about the veracity of the Bible. And then it dawned on us in the middle of the, middle of the answer, she didn't ask any of that. Her question was, how, how can I trust how we got the Bible? Why those books? Who wrote those? Why should I trust, you know, that it wasn't simply 
put together by a bunch of people at one council somewhere who said, these are the books of the Bible, and we'll get rid of the other ones because they're troublesome. All the evidence in the world of the manuscripts, all the other, that was relevant, sort of, but the question she actually asked was more about canonization, right. not about biblical reliability. Now, they both factor in, but that's the, that, so we both realized that we were answering this question, like, we have to shift our answer because it just dawned on us, oh, that's not what you're actually asking, is it? Now, you have to be willing to basically be embarrassed and say in front of a thousand people, oh, hey, I think I botched your question. Mm. Um, uh, and we did, it would, thank goodness. Um, but other times it's in private conversation. So actually answer the question they're actually asking um, is really, really important. And be willing to go back and uh, can correct yourself. The other thing to do, I think, oftentimes is be willing to say, I don't know. Mm. Um, I, I, uh, a friend of mine was telling a story uh, from, from, a, from a platform. She was giving a, a uh, she was part of a Q&A um, and she was, someone asked her a question, what do you do when you don't know the answer? Um, essentially, and she says, well, then you say you don't know the answer. Don't give a half-baked answer, say I don't know the answer. It's one of the most honest questions you can ever, uh, way you, you can ever answer a question. And she said, I'll tell you a story. And she told the story of somebody who was in the audience, who didn't even ask the question, but was in the audience and he was a skeptic, he wasn't a believer, and said, the fact that you answered the question, I don't know, I had this preconceived notion that Christians are these blowhard know-it-alls who give me half-baked answers that are never actually proven to be true or sound true-ish, but not really subject, subject to any scrutiny. He says, but because you were willing to say in front of a bunch of people, you don't know the answer, and your job is to know these answers, that humility got me searching down a path for this one question I thought, and I talked to a friend and we explored it together, and I'm a believer today because you said, I don't know. Wow. Yeah. That's a big deal, um, and we have to have the humility to be able to say that um, and not just give a half-baked answer. But I think the other thing, too, is to ask them, that question I said before is, if this question was answered, what would it do? What if, what if I could ask you answer your question? So I'll give you an example of one from an um, open forum I did. And this did not lead to someone's faith. This led to someone, you know, we had a good exchange, but I think these are down-the-road things. Um, <clears throat> in other words, sometimes you say something in a conversation and it has, a, has an effect that you don't see, but it emerges years later. It happened with me, by the way. The, the two guys who came to my apartment at the University of Michigan and who were giving me the gospel uh, would never have said that they moved the needle with me at all. But they did, and they didn't realize it. And I, I, didn't, I didn't want to tell them, frankly, uh, because I didn't want them to know. Um, uh, <laughs> and, you know, eight, eight, nine years later, I became a believer, uh, and what they said mattered. So don't, don't, don't lose heart if you think what you're saying doesn't matter. But um, all that to say is this, is that I was at an open forum, and a guy walks up to the microphone, and he's a Muslim guy. And he says... Um, because, you know, Muslims believe that Jesus is a prophet, but they don't believe that he's the son of God, and they think it's blasphemous to say Jesus is God. So they say, where in the Bible? Find one place for me in the Bible where Jesus says, as plainly as this, I am God, worship me. Where does he say that? Now, that's a setup question, because he doesn't say that ever. He never says in those words, I am God, worship me. He doesn't say it that way. And so I used to say that as a Muslim, too. I used to object and say, where does Jesus say, I'm God, worship me? And, and therefore, Christians who couldn't find it suddenly were like, oh my goodness, maybe I shouldn't believe this after all. So I'd help them deconstruct that way. But I knew, because I was the guy who used to make that, make that objection, that it's kind of a, it's a setup. So I responded by saying this to him. I said, um, uh, because someone said this to me, it's not because I'm brilliant, it's just because someone else had done this for me. I actually asked him, I said, 
So let me ask you a question. Are you saying that the Bible is an authority here? Because if the Bible does contain words to the effect of Jesus saying, I am God and you must worship me, would you become a Christian today? Would you actually believe he's God and worship? So what if it was in the Bible? Because you're asking me, where in the Bible does that say that? And so my question for you, my friend, is if I can show you where it says that, would you become a Christian today? Um, and he said, well, this, the question still is whether the Bible is reliable. So it might say, it. Like, great, okay. So your question is not really your question. Your mm. real question is something else. Um, I said, but I'm going to answer your question anyway. And I gave him you know, 15 places where, the, where Jesus goes further than saying, I am God. He doesn't say, I am God. He says, I am Yahweh. He goes further than that in numerous places, especially in John chapter 8, but also in places where he says that he is greater than the temple. He is greater than Solomon. He is the one who sends the prophets. Who sends the prophets but God alone? But Jesus says, I'm the one who sends the prophets. So he's not just claiming to be God. He's saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm not just a God like Caesar claims to be. I am the God. So you should worship him. Um, And so I answered the question, but the first thing to ask is, if I could address this question and it was satisfactorily answered, will it move the needle? Because if the answer is no, then you know that's not really their question. If the answer is yes, now they have to stick to it. And that's not a way to trap them. It's a way to get to the authenticity of the conversation. So have authentic conversations through questions that get to the heart of the matter. I think that's a really great way to address doubts. Mm, I love it. I love it. John, anything else to add on that one? I, I'm I'm literally just basking in the goodness of, <laughs> of everything that's coming out of this episode. This is great. It's so good. And and Abdu, you made you made the perfect point of going back to scripture for the reconstruction process yeah. because we know that that is our source of truth. Mm. And without that, we're just spinning our wheels. Amen. You know, um I've said it plenty of times before, and when I was in the Christian it was the words of John the Baptist, actually, um, that got me thinking, maybe this is true after all. I was telling Christians, why are you a Christian? And they would say, mostly, well, I was raised that way, which is like tradition. Sure. And I said, well, that's not good enough. I mean, my goodness, what if your tradition's wrong? You're going to yeah. trust your eternal destiny to a worldview someone else believes? You should you know, look into it. And so John the Baptist, in John chapter, uh, uh, sorry, in Luke chapter uh, chapters, uh, um, 7, um, uh, and in Matthew as well, uh, sorry, not, uh, chapter three, um, he's talking about um, uh, people who are coming to be, to be baptized, and he says, who told you to flee from the wrath to come? And then he says, do not even think to yourself you have Abraham as your father, mm. for I tell you God can raise up children of Abraham from the stones. In other words, tradition does not save you. Mm. Well, that's what I was saying. Uh. And John the Baptist is agreeing with me. And I think through the power of the Holy Spirit, this book that, was, that has been preserved over 2,000 years, John the Baptist spoke to me and said, yeah, you've asked Christians why they're Christians, and you said tradition's not a good enough reason. But is the reason why you're a Muslim is because of tradition? Mm. And that got me thinking, maybe that is the reason. And that got me on my nine-year journey. Here's my point. John, you're so right, is, when, is, uh, is that Scripture has to be a part of the story because people will often say stuff like, well, you know, prove to me the Bible is true without quoting the Bible. Unless if it's circular, it's not circular reasoning. If the Bible says something true and I can corroborate its truth, why wouldn't I quote it? Right. Um, but here's the point: no matter how lofty or how eloquent you are in your argumentation, nothing is as persuasive as the Bible itself. So never engage 
with lofty arguments and a closed Bible. Open it, use it, speak it. It's, it, it got to me and it'll get to the most hardened of skeptic if they actually are willing to open themselves up to it. Well, right. We know that the word of God never returns void. Indeed. <laughs> indeed. indeed. Amen. And uh, it'll either convict someone of their unwillingness or it'll convict someone of their willingness. Um, yeah. and, uh, but it never returns without something yep. uh, in, in, its, in its wake. Yeah, and Paul says, right, we, we preach Christ and him crucified. Amen. Right? Foolishness to the Gentiles, a stumbling block to the Jews, mm-hmm. um, but yet the power of God. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't come to you with lofty arguments. And now, now hey, you know, there's, we need to know our, there's things to know, mm-hmm. but the whole point is we're built on a person, mm-hmm. not an idea. Right. Uh, and his, his, his life, his death, his resurrection. And that is the danger of apologetics, by the way, is that apologetics can devolve into a, a set of, of beliefs about ideals and arguments you can prove as opposed to your allegiance to the one about whom those arguments are made. Oh, yeah. Um, so that's Absolutely. a big, big issue you, with it. Abdu, you, could, you could extend that argument to theology, mm-hmm. to everything. everything. Oh, yeah. Everything. If, if theology just stays in your head and doesn't have that trickle-down effect to your heart, mm-hmm. what good is it? Well, Tozer talks about this. Tozer, in The Pursuit of God, talks about the Excellent fact book. that there, there are so many, and I've read that thing numerous times. My yeah. son's going through it right now. Um, he, he, he talks about the veil being torn, yeah. and there's that veil that we have, and we, we think that we can go in there and tear, tear it down ourselves that separates us from God. It's got to be the work of God who does it. But he says that one of the part, part and parcel of that whole thing about the, 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 the reliance on self is that Christians, as much as non-Christians sometimes, actually don't believe in God in the sense that they have equated him with a concept, idea, or principle to assent to as opposed to a person with whom to engage. Mm. And I think that's a really important aspect of the Christian faith. And there's an excellent book, by the way, if you ever want to literally read someone's deconstruction in an honest and pure way. There's a book by a guy named Barney Adler. It's an online book. It's, I, I don't think it's in print, but it's called Save Me, An Open Letter to the Christian Church. And, um, what go- an appropriate title. Yeah, absolutely. And he goes through it. There's a couple of this. I could quote him over and over again because it's so important because it gives you the heart of deconstruction at the, at the very base of it, the very base of what's going on. So he abandons his belief in God and he gives his various reasons, but his really, the whole book is all about how he wishes he didn't. Mm. And in the middle of it, in the beginning of it, I'm sorry, he says, basically, he's like, Christians have this amazing story about a God who doesn't sit somewhere for you to strive to know him, but for a God who wants so much to be known that he strives for you, that he comes and rescues you from your state of sin and ignorance. And somehow this most exciting story is the most boring thing when you go to church. Mm. He says, says preach it. Yeah. He says basically, how is it that Christians have the most exciting story, but seem to be the most bored by it? Oh my Um, goodness. And then he goes on though. He starts talking about how there's no meaning without God. There's no morality without God. He goes, he acknowledges all these things. And at the end of the book, and I'll paraphrase this as well. He basically says, um, I live in a world right now where I don't know how to even go on anymore. Uh, but I persist anyway. Um, uh, but there's no Jesus. There's no God to comfort me. He says, this world has nothing to offer me. God help me. Mm. That's how he ends the book. And that's deconstruction. And oftentimes that deconstructed heart is longing for that which is true. And we can give them not just the, here's how it fulfills me on Sundays and at birthdays and baptisms and Christmas or Easter, 
but we can actually give them something of so much intellectual substance. Because I get a question oftentimes, and I think this is where deconstruction starts in some people. I don't feel my faith. I haven't felt it in a while. I haven't felt close to God in so long. And so my first question becomes, well, what do you do to cultivate that? Yep. And the answer is usually, well, I try to read my Bible. Yeah, how often? And if they're honest, once in a while, Mm -hmm. or when the verse of the day pops up, that's not not the same thing as reading your Bible. No. Reading the verse of the day is not reading your Bible. Um, How often do you pray? And I don't mean just before meals. I mean, how often do you actually seek the Lord? How often do you actually praise him? Um, Because that, that, now that those aren't meant to generate feelings, but those do cultivate relationship. But then the second question is this, is that I've had my seasons of dryness in spirituality. I've had it. I felt like I don't yeah. feel it. I, but I think we all have. Well, yeah, we all have. And that's, we, just, yeah. that's just honest. Uh-huh. But here's what I, what, where, where I've come out on this, is in the moments where I've either felt dryness of no real spiritual emotional connection or I feel a negative emotion towards it um, because I'm like, God, why aren't you showing up? I don't understand. And you read the Psalms and you get plenty of verification that people who know God well are willing to say, where are you? What's taking so long? Um, and that's a comfort as well. Um, but um, what I've said to people, because I've said this to myself, is it's in the times when I don't feel my relationship with God that I go back to what I know. Yep. Because facts don't depend upon my emotion. Say that again. That was good. I'm going to use your tagline, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> facts do John's not... John's taken over. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, facts don't depend on our emotions. Jesus rose from the dead, whether you like it or not, yeah. and whether you feel it in that moment or not. And so in the moments of emotional dryness, because emotions are very um, circumstance dependent, I can go back to the fact and say... Despite my circumstance, Jesus rose from the dead. You know, there's a wonderful apologist. He's from Michigan, by the way, as well. He's probably the world's foremost expert on the resurrection of Jesus as a historical fact. His name is Gary Habermas. Yeah, yeah. Gary's a good friend. And uh, he was interviewed by Lee Strobel uh, at the uh, end of Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ. Yep. And he was interviewed about the resurrection. And he basically said, you know, what, what, does, what does this do for you? What, what does the resurrection do for you? And Gary uh, talks about the death of his wife. His wife died of stomach cancer. Mm. And he was taking care of her, and she was up in her bedroom, and she was, you know, wailing from the pain. And he just couldn't do anything for her. And to go out on his porch, he'd ask the Lord, he's like, why am I down here, but she's up there? You know, what's going on here? What's the deal? You know, expressing real emotional concern. And he says, if the Lord had answered me audibly, he would have said, did I raise my son from the dead or not? He says, you know, I, I believe that, Lord. You know, I believe it. He says, well, that's all you need to know is that that fact. And so in the middle of his emotional dryness toward the Lord, or even his questioning of the Lord, what he went back to was the historical fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And this is what Gary basically says. He says that I know that Jesus rose from the dead. And because I know he rose from the dead, I know that my wife will rise one day and Mm -hmm. I will too. And we'll both see Christ together. The emotions don't sustain you. It's the facts. It's the reality. It's the truth that sustains you when all emotion abandons you or it leaves you feeling despondent. So I think a good way to address doubts and address emotional reasons why people withdraw from Christianity is to focus on the facts. Because if Jesus rose from the dead, 
every other question will have an answer, either this side of heaven or on the other side. Mm. And if you don't get your answer, all your questions answered now, you will eventually. It was Chesterton who pointed out so beautifully, and I, you know, we're going along, and I'll wrap up with this. Uh, on my end, I think it's so such a powerful statement, and I'll, I'll paraphrase him. In his book, Orthodoxy, he says, joy is the gigantic secret of the Christian. For the Christian, the central questions of life have their answers, even if the peripheral questions remain unanswered. Mm. But for the skeptic, it's the opposite. The central questions of life have no answers, even if the peripheral ones have answers. So joy is central to the Christian life, and despair is central to the skeptical life. Mm. Even if they claim to be really, really happy with themselves, the central questions of why am I here? Is there a purpose? Does life have meaning? Does death have a, a function of some kind? They're all basically no. There's no purpose to any of it. But for the Christian, because the central questions have answered, been answered, joy is central to the Christian life. And despair and hopelessness still exist occasionally, but they're on the outside mm. because the central questions have been answered. I love it. I love it. I think, uh, it was C.S. Lewis, and I'm not sure, but the train ride illustration, you ever hear that? Mm. You're on a train ride, and then when you go through a dark tunnel, you don't jump off the train. Right. You, yeah. know, you might not see what's there mm-hmm. right away, but that tunnel is only for a time. Yeah, and, yeah. And and what you said just there, right? Those are grief and sorrow and despair as part of anybody's life, mm-hmm. but they're peripheral for the mm-hmm. Christian. Mm-hmm. And, you know, read the book of Psalms. You know, mm-hmm. look at Jesus, man of sorrows. Mm-hmm. Um, but yet in the end, right, because of the resurrection, it changes our loves, changes our hope, changes who we are and what we do and how we face everything. Psalm 22 is a wonderful way of seeing a psalmist go through anguish, pain, doubt, and uncertainty only to come out at the end of it. It literally is a very short, but a path of, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far away from my groaning? And he complains about the lions and those who are, they pierce my hands and my mm-hmm. feet, and it's obviously messianic prophecy, but at the end, the Lord has accomplished it. The Lord has achieved victory. So you can see a deconstruction and reconstruction in one psalm, mm. just one psalm. And oh. so I think that there's many, many like that. I like that. Yep. Yeah. And uh, John, also, you can steal lines anytime you want. So oh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I'm asking again. I, I was going to say, I don't know if I necessarily have a catchphrase yet, but... You got to get one. But, yeah. But yeah. I'll do the borrow my own catchphrase. Can you say that one more time about the psalms? What do you see in that psalm? I see within Psalm 22 a reconstruction Sorry, a deep. Sorry, I see within Psalm 22 a recon. I'll start again. <laughs> I see in Psalm 22 a deconstruction followed by a reconstruction mm. in one psalm, just in one of the psalms. I love it. I love it. Well, what a journey! Uh, what a great episode here uh, for Stream Roots. Uh, you know, again, part of Barnum's Ministries and Abdu. Uh, thank you, thank you for sharing your insight, your wisdom, your experience of God's Word and your own life, and uh, we're so glad to have you here, and I hope this isn't the last time we see you on Stream Roots. I very seriously doubt it'll be the last time. Right. Yeah, we, I, we, I harbor a doubt <laughs> about, my, about, about, about that. I will, I, Let me I, challenge that. I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'll be back. I'm sure I'll be back. Yeah. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, Thanks very absolute much. Absolute pleasure, man. And I just want to highlight your book, uh, Saving Truth, as well. It's mm. a great one. And uh, your ministry, can you just give a plug yep. in for it? Yep, Embrace the Truth Ministry, uh, Embrace the Truth International. You can go to embracethetruth.org. Uh, to find out more, and um, we go where we're invited. So we would love to uh, come alongside you 
in whatever it is you think the Lord would have you do in a way that can help people to see the credibility of the gospel. I love it. I love it. All right, let's sign off here. Uh, Stream Roots is a production of Barnabas Ministries. You can learn more at barnabasministriesmi.org. If you've enjoyed this podcast or it's been strengthening to your faith, it's been helpful for your faith, I encourage you to subscribe or to rate this episode or even tell somebody else about it. We'd love to get this out to more and more pastors, ministry workers, and anybody in between uh, who wants to know Jesus and follow Jesus. Uh, We release an episode every Monday morning. Stream Roots, drawing deep from the living water of God's word.